You can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen from Xerox Park. Jeff Raskin was the leader of the Mac team before you threw him off his own project. Everything, someone else designed the box. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? I play the orchestra. Uh, Trent? Wait, no. Wait, you want to start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't mind. All right, I'm ready. I'll keep this all in. No, no, no. Cut it. Trent, I, I do what I want. Trent? Hi, Parth. Hello. Nice to see you. It's good to see you, too. Have you... If you don't mind my asking, can I ask you a question? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Ask away. I know you love this question, so which is why I ask it. Yeah, it's interesting because we're considering cutting the segment. But yeah, who knows? We're doing. We're considering many things. Cutting Trent out of. Anyways, what have you been eating most recently? If if you don't mind me asking. Thanks. Um. So I think I have a, adopted a new philosophy that I can only eat out one meal a day, and if I do two or more, then I'm like a financially irresponsible garbage person. And so um, made a financially responsible smoothie this morning. My standard recipe, banana, frozen fruit, yogurt, cranberry juice, blended up, delicious. Then I made myself a sandwich because I thought if I make myself a sandwich now, I can buy myself dinner from a third party. And, you know, as we are doing this podcast, down the street, some men are handcrafting me tacos. After the podcast, I'm going to pick them up and... No, do unspeakable things to him. But what have you eaten? That sounds beautiful, Trent. It's funny you mentioned pizza because I myself had Totino's pizza rolls. Ah, so you're more of a pizza rolls or pizza bagels kind of guy? I think, here's the thing. Tell me. I think I, I more often have pizza bagels. That you, so you think they're more readily available to you? They're offered more often? I, I feel like they're also filled with like less like garbage, I would say. But I kind of feel like pizza rolls are like much more filling they feel like there's more substance there i prefer pizza rolls as do i i just think that they're worse for you i feel i feel grosser if i have more of them than i should whereas if i have more pizza bagels i'm kind of like this is this pizza is bagels just reheated are kind bread. of all bread yeah, yeah and there's just you know cheese topping and tomato paste on top when i was in middle school there was a period where every day i would come home from school and put like eight totinas pizza rolls on a paper plate put that in the microwave and then you know, just do unspeakable things to them to bring us back to the... that That's one way to put it. Because that's what we do at craft services is we're real smooth about getting this sort of ship on track. If you'll excuse me mixing my vehicle metaphors. So what episode is it? Who are we talking to? Well, we'll tell you after the introduction music. Cue the intro. All right. And then... Bow, 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 bow. And then... <laughs> And then we cancel the show. I hope. If one of us, Parth, if I died, would you release all of the episodes posthumously? Would you continue the pod? I guess I would release them and be like, I guess. But would you do discussions? You do monologue pod? I don't. I feel like I I should continue it in your name, in your honor. But then it's also kind of weird because it's like I don't want to change our. Would you bring someone on to replace me, or would that be insensitive? There would have to be a mourning period. No, you'd you'd no easily one. be replaced easily. 
so uh, like there day were... one, like right after. I don't know. I mean, you're not you're cool. You're not that cool. Um, this do is all staying any... in, by the way. Do you have any idea on who that person might be? Viraj. <laughs> oh, your thirteen year old little brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. That would really that would really make the podcast less diverse. I, it's hard out there being in a white man <laughs> with blonde hair. <laughs> all right, all right. You're you're ready to resume. I feel like I never do this. You want you want it? I can do it if you don't want to do it. I'll do it. Okay. Let's let's see. Listeners, you're about to hear Trent Algar try to bring us in. A thing he never does, because I carry this fucking show. Thanks for the introduction and the introduction. Welcome back to our show, Craft Services. Uh we have a podcast. What's it about, Parth? The movies. And what do we do each week? We interview someone who worked mm. on a movie, no? You're doing well, yeah. Um, and this week, we interviewed the cinematographer. What was his name? Alwyn Kushler. And wait, I, for- was he- I forget, was he delightful? He was wonderful. I was yeah, wait, he was also insightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all positive adjectives that are accurate. So overall interesting. He worked on other good movies that you probably care about, too. Yeah, he's worked on a bunch of cool movies. Uh, Sunshine, The Mauritanian, Divergent. You're doing so good at naming examples. It's what I do. But yeah, uh, Trent, are, are we cool to enter this interview or should we just never? No, no, no. Let, yeah, sure. I think the, uh, do you think the listeners like, like that this bit of us canceling the pod, which is definitely not a bit, by the way, we, we consider it every time. Do you think they like it or is it tiresome at this point? Um, it's a fun juxtaposition because of how, uh, how much effort we put into the pod that, I don't know, when you have a podcast and you're 20 years old and you're a film student, there has to be a level of self-awareness about the fact that you have a podcast. And so I think you have to constantly reference the fact that it, that you're willing to cancel it at any moment, right. even if that's not exactly true. But when it comes to podcasting as a young adult man, just try not to take yourself too seriously, I think, is a is a good, responsible position to have. And a person who didn't take themselves too seriously was Alwyn Kushler. In this interview, he was a wonderful man. And you can now listen to him. Now, listen to it. Stick around to the end of the episode, because that's where the secrets are spilled about our future content. Although we just released our slate, which says, you know, the next two months of episodes. But maybe you'll never know what'll come. All right, let's do it. Yeah. Bye. But also, welcome to the interview. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to our interview with Alvin Kushler. He's the cinematographer for such films as Sunshine, Divergent, and The Mauritanian. He also worked on our film for today, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for asking me to join your podcast. Yeah, definitely. So just to start off, uh, how did you first get involved with filmmaking? What was your start there? I I, I started with the Nikon FM, which I was given as a, a confirmation gift. My grandfather was a Protestant pastor. And then when you're 14 years old, all your relatives come together and they collect money. And then my present was a Nikon FM with a 50 mil, which funnily enough, my son is using now. But also I was really interested in comics, uh, you know, French comics. I also liked drawings. I liked anything kind of arty. I, I, I mean, I, I remember even with a Nikon FM, I did experiments with, you know I mean, I, I, I used an old TV and I put a mirror in front of it and I put cr- 
Vaseline on it and objects and any any form of experimentation. I kind of enjoyed including drawing, painting, photography. Then I started to do an apprenticeship as a stills photographer. And then I had a I made a friend who was at the film school in, in Munich and he asked me if I would shoot his film school exercises. So he came to my hometown Düsseldorf with uh, what you call an R2C. R2C is for those people who are not familiar, it's, like, it's basically a second world war camera design. And it has got like three revolving lenses in front of it. I didn't know anything about the camera. It was the first time I was holding a film camera. And I used my Nikon FM as a light meter. I, I didn't even know that there was light meters for film cameras. So I just took light readings of people's faces with my Nikon FM and translated it to the ISO and the S-stop on the camera. And yes, and then we shot it. And then I thought like afterwards, oh my God, like he, he was asking me to do so many setups in in one in one go. I thought like, oh, that, I'm not sure that's for me because, uh, I mean, I kind of liked taking my time and mm-hmm. trying this and trying that. And But then he showed me the finished version, which was, it was a black and white music video kind of, I think it was, was translated called Harbor, Harbor Sounds. And it was so it had editing and and sound and everything, and I was I, I was really in awe of it. I, I, I mean, I, I guess because I've seen movies at, at that time, but suddenly being part of it was different than. Do you know what I mean I, I, at this point I wasn't like oh I want to become a cinematographer. I was taken by the power of um, of the you know the montage and the possibilities of sound. Then I didn't really know. I didn't really know what kind of photographer I wanted to be. Do you know what I mean I, I did? I, I like mm-hmm. fashion photography in the sense that it was very free and creative. But I didn't like the people so much you, in in an area you had to work in. And I, I was not the lonely wolf kind of journalistic photographer. Mm-hmm. And to become an art photographer really didn't didn't occur to me at the time. And then he asked me to do another exercise. So I kind of became. I still kept doing still photography, which I loved. But also, I, I became more intrigued about filmmaking, and I guess in the end, I did actually really like the collaboration. Do you know I mean, I liked I liked that you kind of got together with a bunch of people who want to do the same thing, right? And, and, and uh, so I kind of I guess I had the realization that actually I like collab- collaboration. I mean, so what I'm describing here is over a longer period. But then I applied for the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield in London. And then I got into that, and then that was a done deal. But you know, I remember at the beginning I struggled because in photography you kind of retain always the copyright of your negatives, and do you know I mean you, you kind of can uh, crop it the way you want? You right. know, there's not like a director who you argue with format you're shooting or something. So, and you end up you end up when you, when I was doing my video exercises, you were just ending up with a umatic at that time, which was like. A bloody big cassette, and, and that was all you ever got for all the hard work you you, you done. Do you mean? So I, I kind of felt funny about that. Anyway, I got into the film school and I met a lot of great people. For me, the film school was great because you know, like I, I moved from Germany to to London. It was a new country. It was kind of a new language, and um, again, you were surrounded with everybody who wanted to make films, and and it's, it was really interesting to meet people from different cultures. Do you know what I mean we had? A student, uh, a female student there from Mongolia, who was an actress, but now she wanted to be a director. And we had a Turkish student there. And we had, you know, a Russian uh, camera student came to visit us. So 
I found it really fascinating. It, it made it started made me think about okay, what what different cultures bring to filmmaking and, and how it affects your the, the use of sound from the Mongolian film director was so different than what we did. Do you know what I mean? So it, it was really interesting, and the pacing of a Russian film school student was so different than what came out of me naturally. Do you know what I mean? So to work with these people from very different cultural background was fascinating to me because it also it made me think about things like why do I perceive something a certain way? Because, you know, like I think people who grew up in big cities maybe have a different perception of the speed of the world than if you grew up in in the tundra or if you grew up in, in a very rural area. Do you know what I mean? So, yes, I mean, that was kind of my starting point. So how did you find yourself in the U.S.? And what was the first motion picture set you worked on? I mean, in principle, there was a point where in order to try other things or new things, you know, I might as well go to America. Do you know what I mean? At this point, I felt like, okay, uh, I couldn't grow that much more in London, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? But, also, you know, like, there was a, to be honest, I feel like I've gone a bit in a circle in the sense that I started with very independent films. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, that, my first film was Ratcatcher. It was 1.8 million. Mm. And, I, you know, I was extremely grateful because it was a door opener for me. And it was so difficult to get your first film even made. Uh, so it was a chicken and egg thing. So if you didn't have a film under your belt, nobody wants to hire you. Do you know what I mean? So, it's a catch-22. You you can't become a waiter unless you've waited somewhere else before. Yeah, it's, that's it. It's kind of like that. Yeah, and, But then I, I, I felt like in, in order to grow or, or to earn more money, I also wanted to try to do bigger studio films. Do you know what I mean like films with uh, bigger logistics and um, bigger budgets and everything? And then, yes, I did some of these films. And then I kind of realized they're so commercial, these projects, and there's so many people involved and they're so political. And even my position as a cameraman, you be, I felt sometimes I became more of a manager than an, an artist. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. now I'm almost feeling more attracted again to smaller projects or at least to projects where directors are auteur directors because I think to me it tends to be a more creatively more fulfilling job. So to to pivot into our topic of the day, how did you get involved with Steve Jobs? You know, Steve Jobs was a project. I think it had at some point different directors attached to it and, and different actors. And then mm. I think um, suddenly it fell into place with Danny Boyle and Michael Fassbender. And and then Kate Winslet's, Kate Winslet's point, you know, I knew Danny Boyle from, you know, previous films of Sunshine. And the first time I worked with Danny Boyle was actually on, I think it was 28 Days Later, I did pickups. Yeah. Whoa. So uh, I did pickups on that film. So I knew Danny for a while and obviously because it was uh, short notice, so I was kind of invited to the party. You know what I mean? And it was actually really short prep time, but because Danny did the one very un- unconventional thing about Steve Jobs was that Danny kind of said to me, it's really like a three-act theater play. He wanted to approach it like a three-act theater play. And and one of the things, because it's an Aaron Sorkin script, so it's very word-heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what he wanted to do is, he wanted to rehearse the first act, 
and then shoot the first act and then they would sh stop filming and he would rehearse again for two weeks with the actors and and then and, and then shoot again so because he wanted the actors to really know the text well so they kind of could attack it with a lot of vigor and energy so in, in a way that allowed us or me it allowed us to to prep shoot and then i could prep again so that that would also right. made it more possible to have a shorter prep initially you know what i mean well, that was that was going to be one of my questions. Is I knew that there was that sort of break period where the actors would rehearse. Were you ever a part of their rehearsal? Were you ever shooting the rehearsal with them, or were you sort of working out on your own? No, I was I was working on my own. I mean, I had to pre-light, or, or or we can get, come to that later. Like we had we had some difficult situation at the San Francisco Opera, mm. so I was kind of prepping but what, what happened sometimes is that Danny would come after the rehearsal he would come to the location where I, where I was prepping and he would give me kind of notes about you know I mean what he thought the actors will do in the space mm -hmm. so I mean basically what, what Danny Ball is very good at is that he gave me a very good initial brief for the film and the very initial the, the, the starting point when he worked with me was really that he said look you, the most important hire you're going to make on this film is going to be the Steadicam operator mm. uh, because I want to create that feeling that nobody can keep up with Steve Jobs and I want Steve Jobs to never stand still. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I want to use uh, a lot of a lot of Steadicam. So I, I very carefully kind of looked for Steadicam operators uh, and I, I was very lucky in the end. I got a, an excellent Steadicam operator he he also happened to be a graduate of Stanford University with with a scholarship, so he was also a very bright kind of person, who also really liked Aaron Sorkin's words and work. So that became really helpful because there were scenes like um, in the San Francisco Opera, where the actors would work over three floors through the building, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't be able to walk with them along because they would go in lifts and everything. And he had this capability of remembering at the end of each take on, on which person or which actor he was for which words and if he needed reverses or not. One moving point was the mobility of the camera. The other one, he wanted it to be not to go longer than you know, nine hours with the actors because he, 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 he realized that it would be concentration was, it would be very exhausting for them mm -hmm. to do like nine hours with this body of um, dialogue so he said like you know to approach the lighting that we don't have to give them such precise marks or, or no marks so the lighting had to be clever or broader so that was another big factor yeah. so with you mentioning like walking up several levels of stairs in a single shot it almost like would make more sense to be on location just because you can't just build a single room. So what would you say was like the ratio of on location to shooting inside a studio? Everything was uh, on location. And another, no, that's not true. Sorry, the, uh, that's not true. The last act is actually a build. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last act is, is a build, but the first two acts is all location. And again, it's it's an interesting a filmmaker's decision because I don't think the Americans understood why Danny Boyle insisted of shooting it in San Francisco. He he really wanted to shoot it in some of the locations these events happened. Right, and, and it's kind of it's interesting because it's not that tangible 
uh, how it affects you, but it does affect you mm-hmm. uh, because you meet you, you meet people who actually have worked on Steve Jobs' presentation in that time. You know, sure. You kind of kind of it's it's, it's a different feeling. You go through these hallways and think, well, actually, Steve Jobs did walk through these hallways. Do you know what I mean? So, I think it it affects you in a in a very positive way, but. You know, you can imagine also like working in San Francisco is not the easiest place and it's certainly not the, the cheapest place. Do you know what I mean? So I think from the American producers kind of world, they said like, why don't you want to shoot it somewhere where it's much cheaper and nobody knows where this room is? Do you know what I mean? So what, what I like about somebody like Danny Boyle is that he chooses this path. He, he understands that this path will have some consequences in terms of money and, and other issues. But he also takes responsibilities for that. Do you know what I mean? So he works with us. So and he really works hard for making it laying out. And to give you an example, like the San Francisco Opera, you have to imagine it's like we were shooting in the opera while there were like five other productions going on, you know, like the Nutcracker and whatever was else was going on. And he realized that he didn't want to give the impression like Hollywood is coming to town and we're just going to take it over because. Trust me, there, there, there are plenty of other egos in that building. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, so he made an effort to go there with me to the sh- to a show, and um, you know, after the show, we would talk to you know the, the creative director of the show and people involved in the show, just to get to know them and get to know their world and everything. So, so he knew, he understood it would be harder to shoot in the opera, but he also worked towards making it work. Do you know what I mean? Which I, I really. Yeah, appreciate and respect in a director. So one of the things that I kind of find really interesting was the decision to have each act be shot in a different format. And I was wondering where did that decision come from? And, you know, which, you know, because I, I believe the first act was 16 millimeter, second was 35 and the third was digital. Where do you fall on film digital where, you know, did you prefer 16 to 35 or is it just different? You know, anything you could speak on that? So, I mean, first of all, it was, when I started to think about what the first act spaces was, you know, I kind of started to slightly dread it because it was really neon lit uh, corridors and, you know, I mean, white corridors and, you know, 70s kind of bad architecture. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and as a cinematographer, you think, well, how the heck can you make that, you know, interesting? I mean, how the heck can you make that uh, different? And and then I thought, well, sixteen mil has got a reduction of information. Do you know what I mean? Because you've got so much it's, it's film grade. So I saw somehow the thought came to me that also that you know period wise that you have got these three acts, and, and and in a way that Steve Jobs historically really has taken us. He was a big part of taking us to the digital age. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of sure. it was also you know I thought well. That would make a good journey. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I presented the idea to to Danny Boyle quite early on and said, "Well, how how do we, how, how how do you feel about if you start shooting on film and then the last act is digital?" I think I said, "Like start on film and the last act is digital," and then he said, "Oh, how about the first act is sixty mil?" And then we did. Mm-hmm. I remember we did a test, and uh, at this time it was already like a couple of years of digital. We did a test on sixty mil. And I think we, we reviewed it and we were like in shock how grainy it was. Before when we went between 35 and 16, it wasn't as, I wasn't as aware of the grain than, you know, with five years of shooting at digital. So 
But then also I really loved it because I felt like it made you look more at the faces. But we also, I mean, we had like a dialogue about it. For example, like you in on trend on your background, Jimmy, you know, you've got these film posters, American animals and everything, you know? So on if I would shoot that setup of you in front of 16 mil, the, these details would become far less important because A, they would be slightly out of focus and B, they would be harder for the eye to decipher because of the film grain. So, so we kind of also partly had the discussion about, okay, if you shoot 16 mil, you, ha- you have to think more carefully about the shot size because if there's certain information you really want the audiences to see, you just might have to go in closer than when you were on digital. Do you know what I mean? Sure. But yeah, so I mean, the, the, the idea of shooting from film to digital was that was originally my idea. But also, interestingly enough, I mean, he, Danny Boyle is also very clever because he realized that it would immediately, it, the value would be a PR uh, uh, benefit. Do you know what I mean? Because it right. gives people, it's kind of a selling point. You tell you. Yeah, it, you can market that. <laughs> You can work on it. Do you know what I mean? Or people are interested on, on these kind of factors. Do you know what I mean? So will it cost some more money? Yes, but it's also it's aesthetically great and it helps you to sell the film. So with that being said, the the whole three act play did the stage like format and you know the Aaron Sorkin words per minute did that affect your shooting style? Like how how did that how did the script change your outlook going in? Yeah, I mean. I think because uh, Aaron Sorkin's script, or especially you know this script, Steve Jobs and, and some of his previous works, they definitely have got like the rhythm of a theater play. Do you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. there's definitely a rhythm to the to the words that they, they definitely have a real impact on everybody. They have an impact on how the actors will play it, and they definitely have a, an impact on how, how how we shoot it. You just have to rely to some degree on. You just have to trust not to do too much. You know what I mean? Like, I, I remember that originally Danny completely realized that and, and just went for it and just wanted to glide with the steady cam so that he also didn't have to interrupt that rhythm too much. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I remember, like, I remember, like, two weeks out, I think he suddenly got really scared of it because he suddenly realized, you know, how can I put my trademarks visuals into it? Do you know what I mean? And it was, he was trying to think, where, how do I get my more creative visuals into it. Do you know what I mean? So, for example, like, I, I was doing doing the whole shooting. That's the other thing. While, while we were shooting, he had this originally this idea in between the sections to put time lapses into it. Do you know what I mean? So I was doing time lapses of San Francisco. He wanted to give San Francisco more of a representation. And in the end, it was kind of take, completely taken out because it, there wasn't the time for it. Yes, I mean, to answer your question, the rhythm of the script has got a really strong imprint on all of us. Do you know what I mean? And also of the shooting style and the visuals, yes. I, I watched the trailer today, and I was surprised by the amount of San Francisco exterior shots, which I guess were cut from the film. But just a quick question is, um, were, was the Steadicam used primarily on the walk and talks or when people were stationary also? I mean, it's quite a while that I've seen it, but yeah, definitely all on the walking talks. I, I think there's like one really big we had once a really big 50 for techno which was i think when the little girl watches when his daughter watches the screen from behind and we wanted to go and show the the crowd yeah we wanted to go from behind the girl to the screen and over the screen because of the crowd was on the we were on the back side of the screen and we wanted to see the people on the other side 
even when we were in these changing rooms, wherever we could, uh, we would use a Steadicam. But sometimes I would do with operate this. If there was a second camera, I would operate it. I mean, off a dolly or you know, handheld or whatever other devices. But I think you can safely say that maybe eighty percent of the film is a Steadicam shot. Toby. Well, just because you brought up Danny Boyle's sort of directorial side has a very specific visual language. There are certain sections in the movie where, like, during the Skylab monologue, you sort of see the visuals of documentary footage and whatever, or during when when he and John, when Steve Jobs and John Scully are talking at the very beginning in the first act, there's the Bob Dylan lyrics. And I was wondering, are those visual cues that you are with him, like he's communicating that to you and you're shooting that, or is that something that you found out later, like he, he did that in editing? No, I mean, the Bob Dylan lyrics, actually, we, we, we projected. Upon some oh, of them. oh, wow. They look cool. Yeah. Well, that was really um, projected. We, we had, like, one technical guy with us because we had so many different monitors. Germany was just film technically compli- more complicated because you have to sync them and, and all that kind of stuff. And he did also the projections. And we worked out with him, like, the, the you know, how powerful this projector needs to be and how high it would be. So I think... There might have been one or two looks which might have been done in post. So that was kind of planned and a kind of it was kind of designed that way. I think the the scene in the corridor was actually I think it was partly coming to Danny in the editing actually. I I remember. Yeah, I think that came in the editing rather than when we were shooting it. I think it was an afterthought, I think. Uh, and there were there are a lot of computer screens also, and I know some movies just slap like a blue screen over them and deal with it later. Was that was that the case, or like did was there actually like uh, eye paint like up and and such? No, I, I mean uh, on this one also because there, the, we had so much of these really old monitors. Mm-hmm. I think we did a lot of it in camera, you know, for real and. You know, because we had like this excellent technician, uh, it made it easier. Do you know what I mean? Like he he facilitated that you could have like ten monitors and he would sync them so that the face bar would be all the same. And because we had like so many computer screens and monitors from different generations, which made it even more complicated. You know, like I, I I'm pretty sure that shot, for example, with the very early scene where we had this uh, the original. Uh, iMac or whatever it was called with the girl and he turns it around and she has drawn, the girl has drawn on it I, I do seem to remember that was for real I mean, that, there might have been the odd one which might have been for other reasons not been in camera but a lot of it was for in camera yeah. So we saw on the special features that uh, like the Apple keynotes were shot and we were surprised by this because it seems like such an artistic choice that like everything but the product launch itself is shown. And so, were you? Did you shoot the the keynotes? Yeah, I, I, uh, there's a, yes, we did actually. We got some old cameras, I think. And I remember because my operator, I think, is just featured in the keynote as a, as a camera operator from that time. I mean, what, the the cool thing about this, the other cool thing was about the the Steve Jobs film was that we managed to fill fill these holes for real because there was such an interest about a, a film right. making about Steve Jobs that the, people just turned up in their hundreds. Do you know what I mean? So, so that was really cool when you had, we had uh, I did very much enjoy these big crowd scenes because it was like they really did generate that great energy and 
you know that feeling you would you would be present just to get back to your relation, working relationship with Danny Boyle, I mean, uh, we didn't know, but you did some pickups on 28 Days Later and you shot Sunshine. So how did how has your working relationship, how did it evolve into Steve Jobs? Sort of what was, how did that change? It's a good question. I, I, I mean, I, I would say because it's like one of the things of Danny Boyle, like Danny Boyle has got his own ideas, right? So he said to me a while ago, probably while Sunshine, he always said to me, you know, Alvin, Alvin, you know, you DPs, if you stop operating, you just become arrogant and lazy. Don't you? <laughs> so, so he has got these ideas of like what a DP should be. But also he did realize on this one, obviously I couldn't operate a static app. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think it was confusing to himself because he knew that I couldn't operate that much um, technically for the song. So, so that was a big change. And he always tried to make it a competition between me and the uh, other operator. You know, like when there was a situation. So, I guess also, like, it, I mean, the material is so different. You know what I mean? Like, you know, sometimes it was in a way all about lighting, you know, and, and it was all like carefully constructed and it was about sequences, whereas Steve Jobs is all about words, rhythm, and, you know, these things I said about like shooting within nine hours and don't give too many marks and the lighting had to be you know, broader or clever or clever for these kind of things. I was going to ask, did you ever watch other Sorkin productions for like, obviously like the West Wing is a huge thing that uses Steadicam pretty much for all of its walk and talks. And did you ever look at other stuff to see if that would inform your work or did you just sort of let it, your thing be its own thing? No, I mean, I, 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 I independently I've seen Facebook. Do you know what I mean? I've seen. Yeah. The social network. Yeah. I've seen West Wing's, I, I have seen West Wing, but not when I was making this film. I mean, I mean, when I read a script, I just read for face value. Do you know what I mean? I, mm, there, yeah. There's a point where you kind of have to cut yourself off from, you know, other influences. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think you just have to see, okay, what, what does that material do to me? Do you know what I mean? What, what do I feel? The one thing we did realize on, you know, is when you read a script in, in, and you've got the written pages in front of you, you, you read it completely in your own pace and accord and, 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 and everything. And when I started to watch the first days of Rushes, I kind of realized, oh, fuck, actually, you know, like obviously actors, they're hammering it out with a certain speed. And I think there was also this realization with Danny and me and the editor and everybody. If you bombard audiences with a certain amount of information, it, it can become exhausting. So the, the, tricky, the trickiest part, I think it's... it's you have to applaud the editor a lot for that, is to kind of have a rhythm that it is the dialogue is exciting but not overwhelming. And how do you achieve that? I mean, you achieve that partly through the editing options you give yourself and partly to build in moments where you kind of know, okay, you, you, you need a reprieve or you need a mellowing down to build up for the next crescendo. So, so that was very specific I guess to the to an Aaron Sorkin script, do you know what I mean? It's just to realize that you have to be able to pace that dialogue, you know, or, mm. or, or, or craft it. So I was wondering about your pre-production process, whether you do storyboards or extensive shot lists, and or whatever your your personal preferences, and how involved you are in post, uh, wh- whether it's color correction or whatever it may be. The, 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 I definitely do some of my own storyboards to, 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 to show something to the director. Um, I can't ever remember that I've used storyboards with, with, with uh, 
Danny, actually. I, I, mm -hmm. I remember that, you know, we used that. The only things I got before the actors would come on set was these visits from Danny, where we had like a four-page dialogue sequence that we would pace it out. I mean, we, we would read the di dialogue ourselves and kind of see where we think people are at a certain point and then how they would pro progress, do you know what I mean? And we would probably look at lenses through, through a viewfinder. But I, I didn't, we didn't do storyboarding, that's for sure. It's also like, I guess, you know, a film where the camera's constantly moving, it doesn't quite make sense because you would have to, to draw so many bloody frames. You know, sometimes I use storyboards. I mean, I mean, I'm working right now with a director called Neil Berger, and we use a lot of storyboards, very simple little drawings. They help me because I, I kind of memorize things better that way. Uh, anything I, I draw with my hand, I just memorize. I, I like them as a communication tool. What, what I tend to do a lot is, you know, like on my iPad Pro, for example, like I like to take photos on location and then I draw into the photos, you know I mean, like people or whatever. You know? my, my experience is also has been that, you know, every director comes with, su they come with such different strengths and weaknesses and you just always start from scratch when you start a new film of how, how do you communicate your ideas to each other. Uh, everybody responds differently to it. So uh, just to ask about a few specific shots or scenes that we, you know, both liked. Uh, the John Scully, uh, Steve Jobs portion in the middle of the movie is like one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And I was wondering what that sequence was like to shoot. And also, I think that it, it has flashbacks to previous scenes. So was that something that was, I mean, he had to have longer hair, I think, in that. So... Was that something you shot during the 1984 stuff or, you know, what was the scheduling for that? Like, if you can remember, I know it was a while ago now. I've got to be honest, I, I can't remember chronologically where we put that in. But as you said, it, it was a very big, compact scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, we, we you know, I, I do remember that we, we went there with stand-ins and, and, and lensed it up that way. And we kind of determined the kind of shots we wanted to do. And then the rest really was maybe slightly tweaked on the day, you know, according to what the actors would, would bring to the game. Do you know what I mean? But yes, I, I, sorry, I can't answer. I can't remember when that was shot or like if you had any consideration. That's that's too long ago. Just in relation to that, in the boardroom scene where it's like raining really hard in the background, um, yeah. was that green screened? Or were there real windows, and then just and then it was added in post? I was just wondering. No, that was that was for real. The rain was for real. Oh, no, was, that's that's fortuitous. Yeah, and it was very that was very carefully uh, designed actually because so the rain was really important to for Danny. You know what I mean, it was like I can't scene. imagine the scene without it. Yeah, no, and, and, and Danny said, "Look, this is the mo most historic firings in corporate history." And he wanted to give it, you know, a certain weight, and he just loved the drama of the rain. I mean, he really emphasized. He didn't want it like a little trickle or tickle. He wanted it to rain, and he wanted it to bring drama to the scene. You know, with Guy Dias, the excellent production designer. You know, we 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 spent some time planning it, and and, and partly because of that, you know, I suggested to build in the light source into the table because I wanted the actors to be lit and wanted to keep the walls as dark as I possibly could. Good idea. It looks fucking awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But so, you know, like between the designer and, and me, 
I mean, that's a, again, coming back, that's great collaboration because if you work with great people, you kind of communicate to each other, sure. you know, what, what your thoughts are. And then we put our heads together. We came up with great material on the walls and we did a rain test before to make sure that it wouldn't be underwhelming when Danny would look at it. So, um, so yeah, that was carefully orchestrated and, and it was done for real. Another shot uh, we really like was uh, like the wide stuff on the parking garage in, in the very end with Steve Jobs talking to his now adult daughter. And we were wondering, is was that like really shot on a parking structure or, or what was that all about? Well, I mean, first of all, Danny, you were very aware that 99%, a lot of the film is in windowless spaces. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think if you look at the film, I think the... First time and the, probably the only time you are actually outside. Yeah, that's why it's so striking. Like, like the yeah. the, the the sky seems so big and blue. Yeah, uh, and then we happen to find it again. We happen to find it for real. Yeah, so we we happen to find like even that high white. We found another building which was overlooking this parking structure, and we were looking maybe quite a while for it to find the right parking structure and, and another building we could look onto it. No, that was. I mean, Danny, the director, Danny Boyle, he does love to do things as much for real as he can. I mean, I, I think you know he's he's in that way like Chris Nolan. Do you know what I mean? They, they're like people who try to do things as physically for real as if whenever they can. And I, I personally, I, I I love it because it just gives everybody a sense when you're there. It it, it impacts the actors if you got real rain or it impacted the actors in sunshine when the lights got extremely bright. I mean, your eyes physically react, your irises get smaller. So physical things really, everybody responds to and I think it inspires you to do certain things. I mean, so, so if you compare it to films like 300 where everything is in front of green screen, I think if you look at it carefully or if you would let it look now, you also kind of see there's a certain vacuum about the feeling about it. Yeah, I mean? it kind of feels smaller. In a, in a, it kind of feels like it's shot on a stage. Yeah, I mean, well, from my own experience, when you spend like three or four days in front of a green screen, it sucks all energy out of you. It just doesn't give the actors any anything to work with. Like, it, it really goes all... It, it goes the extra mile if, if they're interacting with the space. That's right. But also, you know, you get ideas. Do you know what I mean? Like an actor might lean... And next close to a wall and you suddenly realize, oh, the wall is shiny and the actor reflects in the wall mm-hmm. and you base the whole shot around these elements. Do you know what I mean? And right. you're, yeah, you never have happy accidents if you're shooting on green screen. That, yeah, that's right. It's too, I don't know. It's not, you know, some people love it. Uh, I, I personally don't like it. <laughs> I think it's like the camera, you know, it's a bit like a lot of the superhero movies, the camera can do anything in conjunction with the green screen and everything, but uh, it's not personally my thing. I can do it, but it's not my favorite way of working. So the last scene that I wanted to talk about was the final scene in the movie where Steve Jobs is walking out and there's all those flashing cameras. Was that something that you just took from the script and that was just sort of what you went with? Or was that a decision uh, that you and Danny Boyle made together to sort of end it on this very bright thing with all the lights flashing? No, that was also carefully... Uh, planned and uh, I think it was about that every presentation at the end of every act has to be bigger than the one before. But then it's obviously also this moment where we see from his daughter's point of view, Jeremy, you know I and it's kind of 
I mean, we didn't use words like this, but at that point, it's almost like Steve Jobs is that godlike creature, isn't it? Like, uh, sure. I mean, he even looks like the Steve Jobs we all know and some of us loved. Yeah, black black turtleneck and blue jeans and dad shoes. Yeah, he's in he's in his Halloween costume. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's also meant to present the imprint of, of, of the daughter's vision of of her, of her dad. You know what I mean, see, mm-hmm. see in a different light. I mean, literally, like literally. I mean, I remember with my gaffer, we were hiding film lights in between the audiences so that so there was a mixture of, of film lights flashing as well as um, magnesium flashes and, and every little patch we could get our hand on. So we, we put a lot of work in to get this uh, cacophony of, of flashes going there. So your latest credit was on the Mauritanian, and we were wondering what that production was like. I really loved it. It was, a, you know, it was a project which was very dear to my heart. First of all, I thought it was interesting to do a film once about, for once, about a Muslim, because you know, uh, because of the way they're very often portrayed in the West. But it's also a film about big injustice, and I guess I love stories which are about real people to some degree. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Kind of, I think that I find that inspiring, and I find that interesting to, stories to tell. The Mauritanian is a story about uh, Muhammad Usahi who wrote this book in in his imprisonment in Guantanamo. I mean, I met the real person, we met the real person, and, you know, these things are affecting you. Again, it's, it's different because, you know, Kevin McDonald, the director, he comes from documentaries, so he is like an incredible, also, he's an incredible researcher, so he kind of hits you with a lot of fascinating details. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, like, um, you know, the the real Muhammad comes from this population, but it's a really small country, it's 500,000 people in Mauritania. But land-wise, it's probably as big as Wyoming or something. It's a, it's a massive land stretch, but all a lot of it is is desert. And 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 they traditionally they are Bedouins. And he was like the first generation of people who got an education. And then he got a scholarship to Germany. One of the details was for Bedouins, everything is about orientation. You know, where north, south is, and west and east. Uh, and then you can see it because if you're in a in a landscape like the desert, you kind of lose your orientation like nothing because. Tent dunes move and tent dunes look very similar. It, within the culture, it's ingrained in you to have that sense of orientation. So to imagine somebody like this being put into a tiny room where you don't even know if it's day or night, must be even worse than it would be for you and me. We would find out stories like if the only time he, fu- he worked out eventually that if he would look down the toilet bowl and he would look down into the pipe, he could see if the pipe was catching daylight or not because he's... Mm. It was slightly raised off the ground. Mm. Uh, so that's the only way he could tell because he would say things like, you know, sometimes he would sleep, he would wake up and he, he, he would not know if he could celebrate because he slept eight hours or if he only slept two hours. Do you know what I mean? It was so, so disorienting. Unfortunately, there were other details which didn't make um, their way into the film. He told us that uh, these people who interrogated him, in reality, in the real life, they were wearing Star Wars um, masks, right? <laughs> And he could hear the guards outside arguing which character, car character's mask they would carry before they would come in and torture him. Do you know what I mean? So, so you've got this extremely weird, you know, world. Unfortunately, you know, not everything could make its way into the film. Sure, you have to kill your darling sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like it was an interesting project for me also because I got much earlier involved in the film than normal. Do you know what I mean? Like I, normally, I get approached once the finances are raised and. A script is there, 
because I know Kevin personally and I know from other projects, we talked about it much earlier and he said, well, you know, if I make a film only from Mohammed's point of view, I, I'm going to get like 1.5 million. And, and, and so he decided to go more for a structure where he would make it more like a thriller. Do you know what I mean? Is, is, he, is he guilty? Is he innocent? And you've got these other characters like Jodie Foster, the lawyer, and Benedict Cumberbatch, the prosecutor. So, so the structure became a different one. Do you know I mean, you could have made other films about it. You could have made a film like Son of Soul, do you know what I mean? Where it's all like extremely from one. Uh, do you guys, are you guys familiar with Son of Soul? Uh, I've heard of it, but I, I've never seen it. Well, I, you guys should, especially as film school students, you should check it out. It's a it's a film about a guy in a con- concentration camp, and it's it is kind of impressive in what with what singularity the filmmakers kind of filmed it because it's all from the point of view of the protagonist, uh, not always literal literally, but very much psychologically with that in mind. It was a film which came to my mind when when we were making the film because I, I thought the experience is good. Anyway, you should check it out. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great film and it's a very strong film. So yeah, so that's like uh, the Mauritania was, I loved working on it. You know, like it was also like great because the actors really uh, wanted to be there and, and wanted to make this film, you know, for more than personal reasons. And that made it a great film experience. So. Would you say it's time for the Big Kahuna final question? Yes, I, I would say so. Um, so just to wrap up, uh, we like to ask our guests this: the big kahuna, as Trent put it, of uh, what was the last great thing you watched? Oh, good question. Oh, actually, I loved uh, Sound of Metal. Oh, awesome! We just watched that. Uh, Trent and I both just we just did an Oscar episode and we both watched it. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, was that your Was that your favorite of all the Best Picture nominee? I think so. Yes. You know, like because I think. As a being a filmmaker yourself or being involved in it, I think it you know you always deconstruct so many films. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I just felt myself I was so drawn into the film and and I forgot I was watching a film. Well, there were lots of great performances in it, but I, I, I thought Riz Ahmed was mind blowingly good. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, for sure. Um, and I, I really liked the storytelling. I, it felt so unforced and, and, and casual, but yet really powerful, you know? I mean, it's, it's interesting you picked that movie as a DP just because it's so sound fixated. So yeah. would you w- would you say you find yourself drawn towards, like, like, visual masterpieces? Or, I mean, at least The Sound of Metal is a little bit of a change of scenery with, due to your profession. Okay, that's a fair enough comment. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess as you, I don't know, as having matured in my own kind of way, I guess in the end, it's you do mature into that. It is all about the story. Do you know what I mean? It's like either a story is powerful or and draws you in, or it isn't. Do you know what I mean? And you, I mean, to be honest, like you know, like I've seen bits of Man- Monk, and of course they're visually, you know, stunning, but it just did the film itself didn't really. You are preaching to the choir, friend. We 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 love David Fincher, and it it was the lack of story, despite you know the the beautiful technical elements. Yeah, I just I didn't get into it. I mean, so but you know, like a Minari, I watched also Minari, which I I did like, and you know, like to be honest, I thought it, it was really beautifully shot in a very simple way. I mean, mm-hmm. I, if you but if also like if you deconstruct it, I feel like. The, the lenses they picked for the moments and the beats and the scenes, I think it's very well done. Do you know what I mean? It's, I think it's very um, beautifully done, and you know, without becoming un- 
untrue to what the story needs or making you know locations visually too interesting but it doesn't fit the story but yeah i, I guess sound of metal is just i just happened to be i'll start watching it I, I i i didn't know if i would like it and i was to be honest i was kind of blown away by it you know? sure well trent would you say that's should we bring us this out now yeah, I'd say that was a successful interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much to Alvin Kuschler for coming to talk with us. He worked on Divergent, Sunshine, The Martanian, and of course, our film today, Steve Jobs. Thank you so much. Good, good luck with your own uh, film career. <laughs> Thank you. We'll need it. Trent, was that interview good or not? I don't know. I really liked it. Did you? I, I had a good time. So that, I mean, with that being said, that interview's in the past. Let's look forward. We're discussing Steve Jobs next week. Who's going to be there? It's just going to be your best friends, Parth and Trent. Because you don't need anyone more. The co-hosts of the show. Yeah, maybe in the next few weeks. Steve Jobs, The Departed, Army of Darkness. Who knows if we have a discussion guest? Maybe just Parth and I go man to man in in the in the digital ring. Yeah, we're gonna go buck wild for the podcast, guys. I, I don't think you guys are ready. Yeah, the fiftieth episode spectacular is coming up. Wait, is that gonna be uh, the interview with Doug Leffler? Maybe I don't kiss and tell. Was he, he the second unit director on Army of Darkness? I forget. You'll just have to find out in when's it like three weeks. I don't know. Guys, just keep listening to our show. Yeah, like, we're begging. And and while you're at it, what do you want them to do, Trent? What I want you to do, if you've come this far, you like you like something about the show, and so get down to business. You're going to go to Apple Podcasts. You're going to go, you're going to scroll down to the review section, and then you're going to give us five stars, and then write a positive review. How's that sound? I think that's a great idea. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. That sounds like a great idea. And... And hear me out, bonus round, if while you're at it, you subscribe to our channel, I wouldn't mind. That sounds pretty good to me. It's because Parth and I, we want to make money. We want to monetize the podcast, and so we can quit all of our jobs and just do this all day. I have been fully transparent about how all the work I do, all in an effort to sell out. It's in the name of finance. We don't even like movies. We don't even watch the movies we talk about. this is all a farce. Parth and I are actually just really good voice actors, and we fake the interviews. We've hired actors to portray us. So all the photos you've seen of us, it's not us. It's actually kind of ironic, the amount of production value that we're putting into this about the movie. Well, we kind of could just be doing it honestly, and it would probably be less work. But then we'd have to have a movie podcast. Maybe we should cancel the show then. It's hmm. a good idea. Hmm. We'll have to look into that, and you'll have to find out whether it's canceled next week. Yeah. That's the trick. That's what, how we get you we'll to keep come you back. coming. But if if they saw we had an episode, then they'd know we weren't canceled. But maybe then we were just announcing the cancellation. Goodbye. <laughs> All right, we'll be done. <laughs>